Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 99 of Sportsbeak. Yes, we're one away from 100. Stay tuned for that. Hope you had a great Memorial Day weekend. I'm Eddie Kalecki. And I'm Tim Moore. Well, we're going to be recapping the greatest day in motorsports last Sunday coming up. F1, Indy 500, Coke 600. Lots to talk about there. But, Tim, let's start because we got to mention the NBA. NBA Finals starting tonight. We're recording this around 1 o'clock on Thursday. And game one tonight between the Boston Celtics, Golden State Warriors. Celtics in the finals for the first time since the Garnett, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce days. Warriors back for the sixth time in the last eight years. ESPN has BPI Celtics at 86% of a chance to win the finals, which I think is outrageous because Golden State, we know what they can do. Not discrediting Boston. They're a phenomenal team. But the Warriors, Steph, Clay, Draymond, they've done this before. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, never been in the finals in their career. Game one tonight, I think the Warriors are going to jump out strong in game one. I just think having that experience, this is going to be a tight series that could go six or seven games. But I think Golden State being there before, they're going to be pumped up. Clay Thompson is playing great basketball right now. I got the dubs in game one. Tim, quickly, how about you? Yeah, I don't want to underrate this Golden State Warriors team at all. I think that they've been playing with their backs against the wall the entire playoffs and really, again, has been playing to an underdog, which to me is a little bit bothersome, Eddie, if I'm being honest, because of the fact that Granted, this team's history, they're finally getting all the pieces back together um, in regards, obviously, no Kevin Durant, but did they have all these pieces back together all the way back from their last championship run? I mean, you think about Clay Thompson, how he really started to pick it up as the season, you know, really started to come to a close, especially here in the playoffs. And I, I do like this for Boston. We talked about, obviously, in the Miami, uh, Miami series about how Miami – Went a little bit out of their strategic way with the big forwards of of Boston that, let's be honest, they were a little bit scared to utilize it inside game late in that series, and it ultimately cost them. They decided to play a perimeter offense, and Boston closed it down pretty well. But there's a big, big difference from Miami and Golden State. Golden State in a Steve Kerr offense, and we've talked about it here on Sportspeak before as well, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm trying to remember who, who said it two shows ago, but they talked about one thing about a Steve Carr or a Steve Kerr offense where it, it's so focused on great passing, great, you know, off off ball play screens and so on to set up the open man. I'm not saying that the Boston defense can't handle that, but it's one thing playing a Miami deep three game and playing a Golden State deep three game. Steph Curry could pull up from half court and still drain something. Klay Thompson is arguably one of the top five elite shooters in NBA history. And arguably, you would say maybe up there with Ray Allen if Steph Curry didn't exist. You know, this offense has a great flow. Boston, the only way they're going to be able to keep with Golden State is if they can flow. And it's an absolute shame that the Golden State Warriors are an underdog in this series. In my opinion, they're the favorites to win this series. And the fact of the matter is this, Golden State continuously season after season. Remember before the start of the season, Eddie, we talked about, oh, the defense. It's promising. They have a couple young forwards. They have the youth. They have the pieces to slowly develop and be a solid basketball team season in, season out. 
I know the last two seasons have been tough because of injuries, but my God, not only do I have the Golden State Warriors winning tonight, I see this game going six, or the, excuse me, the series going six games, and I have the Golden State Warriors winning yet another NBA championship. Yeah, that's what I said a couple shows ago with Raheel, 100%. I got dubs in six. Well, the man, the myth, the legend himself, Drew Jua, has joined the Zoom, so let's bring him in and recap all the racing from Sunday. Well, continuing on here on Sports Speak, we've got Drew Jua here. Of course, he is part of our uh, NASCAR weekly pick and he did a pretty good job in NASCAR and Indy 500 picks. We did two, and of course, Indy 500 with the double points. That kind of helped Drew out as well. So uh, Tony Kanaan was a great pick for the Indy 500. Unfortunately, I thought the 48 car was going to have a great day, and Jimmy Johnson crashed, and Alex Bowman was still irrelevant despite all of the cautions and the wrecks in the race. But Drew, it's great to have you here. Um, let's talk a little bit about F1 because obviously probably that's the one I'm least familiar with. I want to get more into Formula One because we've seen in recent years the sports popularity grow not only in America, but among like, you know, younger people as well, like the 18 to 29 uh, distinction. A lot of people watching this sport now all over the world. And uh, the Monaco Grand Prix, one of the big events every year, there was some rain that led to some issues, but they were ultimately able to get out on the track. There was some drama with that, but uh, Sergio Perez was able to get the victory for Red Bull. I know that was a big win for him. I believe his third career Grand Prix victory. And, you know, in a year where it seems like Mercedes is a little bit down, Ferrari's on its way up, Lewis Hamilton not as strong, even Verstappen has taken some steps back from last year. We're seeing a lot of parity in F1 this year that's kind of different from last season where it was really just Hamilton versus Verstappen all season long. So, Drew, what do you make of at least what you saw from Monaco? And, you know, there's been rumors, too, about the F about Formula One in the future trying to move the Monaco race away from Memorial Day weekend, which I don't think they should. So uh, just your opinions on that and the race itself. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a good race. I mean, they started out, they were going to start at, uh, in the rain. They went and did their form uh, formation lap and they called it off. I kind of fell asleep because this was early in the morning for me and I wake up and they still haven't started. I knew uh, with how it was like with spa last year that they were probably going to have to go to the timer. Luckily they got some of this race in and uh, it was an interesting race. I know, uh, Charles Leclerc got uh, something unfortunate happened on pit road while I was asleep, but I know um, Checo just, it was, it's really hard to pass at Monaco. That's what Monaco has always been like, but um, there, there's four of them. It was uh, Perez, Leclerc, Sainz, and Verstappen were all in like this four car train around uh, Monaco and none of them could pass each other. So uh, it was unfortunate that it came down to, the time expiring, but it was a, it was a good race overall. And Tim, I wanted to ask you as well, you know, I've seen rumors that have at least floated around on social media about <laughs> F1 wanting to move Monaco away from this weekend, but you know what, at least traditionally, I think it's a great way to make a full day of racing one of the premier events in F1 and these three sports, they might have their differences. They might not have fans that necessarily overlap in some cases, but kind of using each other to make it a big day for motorsports in general. We saw NASCAR tweeting um, and embracing the whole day and tweeting about Monaco and the Indy 500 happening. Uh, these sports, at least on this day, shouldn't really be in competition when the races aren't overlapping with one another. And Monaco's a big one. It's a great track and it's a big event for F1. So your opinions on that and the season so far for F1. 
Yeah, well, well, first off, I'll say it like this. If you think about it, the Monaco Grand Prix is arguably the biggest marketed race in America outside, of course, the races within America's market for F1. There is not a single person, in my opinion, that I know of that is a racing fan that doesn't at least have any record, or I should say, uh, doesn't not recognize what the Monaco Grand Prix is. You know, it, it's always the kickstart to what is going to be a great weekend of racing between the Indianapolis 500 and, of course, the Coke 600 as well later on that night. But the big thing is this, and, and Eddie, to, to kind of answer at least a couple of questions in regards to why they're talking about moving it. Uh, during the pandemic, obviously, uh, things created a little bit of an interesting situation where, of course, a lot of races, such as the Indianapolis 500, even, for example, didn't happen in time. But I think what we're starting to see for the Monaco Grand Prix, which is becoming a little bit of an issue, is they feel if it gets moved to later on throughout the year, there tends to be a big history of them dealing with rain. Whereas I think F1 is getting a little bit frustrated that it feels like every time they come to Monaco, they just can't have a clean weekend without having to deal with that factor where I think they're thinking about statistically speaking, having less odds of rain and trying to have a clean weekend without controversy, because it does honestly feel like every time F1 does come to Monaco, even, even if it's not during racing, if it's during qualifying at some point, they're dealing with, with rain and i think it's to be justified if they feel later in the year is going to be better weather wise for example you let's look at nascar this year right or hey maybe now the, the conversation may change about an early martinsville race with this next gen car because we saw how hard it was to race with cooler conditions maybe you want to save a lot of these short track races for when it warms up a little bit around may june so that there's a little bit more racing of course f1's not like that things are more technology uh technologically advanced and there's a lot of money involved for teams but if it's going to put on the best product for f1 i don't blame them but what i do ask f1 is this yes i know everyone will be a little bit disappointed if they lose to monaco grand prix uh, on on the given weekend but i at least ask that you, you try to make another big market race Oh, it, that's not Monaco to put in that slot. And I know F1's done a good job, by the way, expanding your schedule, making more tracks. But I, I'd be I'd be biased to say, oh, you know, add another American market race. But I, for F1, they've been talking about wanting to grow throughout America even more than what they're doing now. I'd love to see them do a street course race, uh, another one in America to, to, to try to, you know, get a pure advantage of the American market that these teams have, I, have been dealing for. And of course, you know, with them only being at Homestead a few weeks back, how hard is it really to be if they can adjust the schedule around where, Hey, they're in America for a few weeks, they can cut down shipping costs and so on. I, I think it would be ideal. Um, but overall the race, I'm going to be honest, didn't really do much watching uh, just because going through the rain, everything. And for me, the big, the big circle, if I'm being honest, was the Indy 500. And not not because we had points on it, not because we were betting, but there was a lot of storylines going to the Indy 500. Of course, Jimmy Johnson, his first Indy 500, and Scott Dixon, can the man finally break his bad luck? Unfortunately, the answer was no. But overall, this season, in a nutshell, for F1, unbelievable. 
predictable as can be, just like how it is. When, when you bring in a new generation of car, teams may hit it immediately. Some may not. I mean, how do I put it like this? Haas has more points in one race in their first race of the season than they've had the last two to three years combined. If that doesn't define unpredictable, I don't know what else defines unpredictable. A lot of these teams, it's either hit or miss. And if I'm going to be honest, this season for a lot of F1 teams, it doesn't matter how much, I mean, it matters how much money you have if you want to be competitively competitive towards the championship run. That hasn't changed a little bit. Of course, Verstappen's still having a great year when he's not DNFing. Same thing as well with Lewis Hamilton. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot more challenges because there's a lot more barriers you're going to have to get through with this new car. And it's creating good racing. And you can almost wish it's going to stay like this. But let's be honest, with F1, uh, unlike, I would say, this next-gen car, where we thought at some points the teams that have it figured out would stand out by now at this point in the season, for F1, I, I really don't think, or I should say, I'm sorry, I do think that teams at some point throughout the season are going to start really establishing themselves and furthering themselves from the pack once they finally figure everything out with this new car. And I would not be surprised if it's two of the same people that we saw battling for a championship last year, but it's good to see that there's a good competitive balance early on this season and a lot of the race has been unpredictable. Yeah, for sure. And uh, one last thing I want to touch on with Monaco, you know, some people who are a casual F1 viewer might complain, oh, there wasn't much passing in this race. Well, number one, there's not tons of passing in F1 to begin with. It's more of a strategy based sport. Number two, Monaco isn't really the track you're going to get that because it's very narrow. Monaco, I kind of consider... I don't know. I'd sort of equate it with how the Brickyard 400 used to be for NASCAR. Maybe not the best racing necessarily, but the venue, the location, the fans, it was a big deal. Of course, that track is so cool with the hairpin, the tunnel. Well, it's, uh, it's the track style that makes Monaco stand out right. more than track. It's it's the narrowness. It's being on the edge. And one little mistake, not just ends your day. Very similar to, for example, the Charlotte Roval for NASCAR. Granted, that's a racetrack and not a street course, but what was the biggest threat of Charlotte when the Roval first came out? It was the fact that if you were just a little bit off edge, you can destroy a race car and you can end your day in what's a crucial race. And of course, yeah, this isn't essentially in the hindsight of a big schedule, not as much of a crucial race as what a NASCAR playoff race would be, but it's a race that everyone in F1 says, hey, I want to go out and win. It's a big one for everyone because it has a lot of meaning throughout the F1 world. And and really, a lot of people that turn around to win the Monaco Grand Prix turn out to be legends within the sport. It's just been a fact of it, just like the Coke 600 and Indianapolis 500. And again, I don't want them to go away with the race. I'm fine with them moving the race as long as there's uh, a, a response of trying to get a race to fill that void for what is going to be a big market opportunity for F1. Yeah, for sure. But of course, the big, 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 biggest event of the day is the Indianapolis 500, right smack in the middle. At least for me, that was the race I watched the most of. I've seen highlights now of all three. I only watched a little bit of Monaco and let's go Mets. I was at the Mets game. So I did not watch the Coke 600 until I listened to stage three on PRN. I got to hear Chris Bush or flip. And I was like, what just happened? And then I got to watch the last like 50 laps or so once I got home from the Mets game, but the Indy 500, I watched almost all of it. And let me just say that was a fantastic race from beginning to end. Kudos to Marcus Erickson. I mean, the way that he handled those last two laps, let's first, you know, circle back a little bit with six to go. Glad that the 
Indy 500 that the officials decided to red flag the race after Jimmy Johnson's crash to set up a late restart rather than it just ending like that because you knew there was going to be some sort of battle for the lead at the end if they tried to extend this race a little bit and man the field tried everything to get around Marcus Erickson but the way he was able to work the draft a lot just hold back Pillow and anyone else from behind from getting any sort of a run I mean he just did a incredible job at the end of that race and Erickson someone who hasn't really raced doesn't have a ton of oval experience only a couple of years in the IndyCar series to be able to do that and also become another Swede to win in the Indy 500 a big deal for his country and for his team of course and you know Erickson's only got three wins in the IndyCar series and two of them have been chaotic this one and then the other one at Nashville where his car got airborne early in the race and he ended up still coming back to win the race with the replaced wing but great race overall cars were hard to handle we saw a couple of wrecks nothing too bad the worst wreck was actually in practice on Friday when Colton Herta flipped over Um, a lot of drivers were losing it off of turn two but great racing Scott Dixon came close Jimmy Johnson struggled a bit Alexander Rossi as well and in the end just Drew a great run for Marcus Erickson, capping off what I think was one of the more exciting Indy 500s in recent years. Yeah, it was a it was a really fun race to watch. I, I didn't watch the first half of the race because I wasn't home, but uh, turned it on and saw Scott Dixon was finally going to get his uh, first Indy 500 win, and uh, then he sure. comes down pit road and speeds. So uh, unfortunate, he was the, he led the most laps this race and that race, and I mean he just I wouldn't say he choked, but he kind of did choke he did it in scott dixon fashion i every year and and you know what's sad too because it it, this would be dixon's second 500 wouldn't be his first it's just the fact that he won it in such a weird way the first time you know going through a whole process of where I don't know how many times you can dominate a race, lead so many laps. He, by the way, is now the all-time lap led leader in Indy 500 history. And it's just the fact that no matter what he does, it's the wrong strategy. You could save gas. You could try to play the long game. Doesn't work out. You could try to pit. You could do short. You get caught with an unfortunate, untimely yellow, which happened. And he said, you know what? We're just going for it this time. And the fact that he locked it up on the final pit stop, oh, it, it, it's devastating because I'm, I'm a big Scott Dixon fan. I love Scott Dixon. I, I love what he's meant for Chip Ganassi for, for practically the start of his career. Taking, let's be honest, now an IndyCar now, it's top-tier equipment, but what at the time was mid-tier equipment just like it was a NASCAR, being a talented driver, proving versatility, and winning championships it is absolutely remarkable. But to, to, to say the fact that the man that met the middle, Eddie picked Jimmy Johnson, I picked, of course, Scott Dixon, shame on me, and the fact that it was Erickson that comes out victorious it's kind of funny, but at the end of the day, still big one for Chip Canassi. Just wasn't the guy we expected it to be. But uh, Eddie, if we could talk about, and maybe I'll ask you too, what's your take on the final lap? Because in particular, there was a lot of 
criticism to paddle award for lifting going into turn one of that final lap. I have one take. Uh, I know a lot of people I've talked to may feel a different way, but I'm interested to see how you feel about Pato's move. Um, I think it was the smart move because he would have gone absolutely flying if he, these, this isn't NASCAR. And a lot of the people who are criticizing that move are NASCAR fans. And the only race that they watch in the IndyCar series is the Indianapolis 500. I am one of those people that doesn't really follow IndyCar outside of the Indy 500. But I know when you have open wheel cars, you can't be making contact at 230 miles an hour going into a corner. That's not going to work. And I think it was the smart move. And also with how well you can build up runs, he had still two long straightaways. There was definitely going to be at least one more chance at Erickson. But Erickson just did such a great job you know, deflecting any sort of run and just moving back and forth on the back straightaway to allow the draft to be broken over and over again. So uh, I, 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 I defend Paddle Award for lifting. Drew, how about you? I, I think it's the smart move, but at the same time, him lifting, he just loses so much momentum. By then, Erickson doesn't lift, and he's already a couple tenths away, and with it only being the final lap, and he has one and a half straight – He's never going to catch back up. Yes, it was a smart move because in turn, if they both wrecked, who wins? Tony cannot my pick, but it's the smart move. Uh, he 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 made he made the smart move, and uh, he he didn't have the momentum to beat uh, Erickson in the end. Catch Erickson. Yeah. If I could input from at least perspective of trying to understand IndyCar, I in my opinion for Pato, by the way, I, I think it was a smart business move in regards to racing for a championship you have to remember the indianapolis 500 is one of those races that is not just a crown jewel of indycar in its biggest race throughout the year but it offers something that indycar doesn't do anymore with the exception of the indy 500 and that is offer double points so with that being said for indycar for for especially for paddle award who had a great season a few seasons ago, feels like at this point he should be a champion and hasn't been able to fully gather what has been a championship run this year. It it was a good decision that could either, A, come back to bite him if he doesn't win this championship later on this season, or B, could be the smart decision that saved him the championship. Because, of course, if he keeps in the gas, gets a little bit of wake of bad air, hits the outside wall, Pulls, well, an earlier Hildebrand, of course, wouldn't be off the turn four. And let's say finishes near 21st. I think there was 20, 21 exactly on the lead lap after Jimmy Johnson wrecked out. His race would not see a lot of points in a double points day. He'd be well out of the championship hunt going into next, uh, going into the next race. But him lifting, it, it, it made more sense to me in a big picture. I know a lot, not a lot of people can like that. Oh yeah. It's Indy 500, just like the Daytona 500 and so on. But the difference is the Daytona 500 to start the season. There's a lot of opportunity to make up the Indy 500 is almost practically towards not, not the midpoint, but right around the midpoint. And you have to remember an Indy car, there's no playoffs. You race from start to finish. That's how a true champion is crowned. And when it's all said and done, I I applaud Pato for lifting, although I will make the argument, knowing from my experiences at least a little bit with IndyCar, I feel that he was ahead a little bit enough of Erickson that he probably, from where he was in the corner, could make it wide open. 
I think he was more worried that Erickson was going to wash up, thus why he played chicken. And then he got the wake of bad air, which killed his chance of developing a run off a two to set up down the back straight away, which is why you saw Erickson ultimately pull away. But again, congratulations, Erickson. Finally, a non-cotton ball. Comes with controversy in regards to Dixon. Of course, Dixon's fed, but it was a well-earned result. He was up there all day long, and it didn't come with controversy of many other things of him getting the win. And again, congrats to Chip Ganassi. Now let's see if this can turn into, again, a championship builder for either Pato or, of course, one of the Ganassi cars between Dixon and Erickson. Yeah, for sure. And let's switch to the nightcap. Coke 600, which... I replied, I replied to somebody's tweet. I, I think it was, in my opinion, from what I saw and watching the highlights, to me it was the best NASCAR race I've watched since Chicago in 2018. I think there was a lot of parity throughout the race. We saw drivers like Kyle Larson, who struggled early, be able to recover, very reminiscent of the old days, to early 2000s, where drivers would spin, go laps down, and be able to recover. We haven't really seen that. The long race, you know, I'm someone who's a proponent of, shortening the distance of certain NASCAR races, but the Coke 600, this is a tradition of having the 600 miles and it paid off for guys like Larson who were be able to recover from for him, two spins and three pit penalties and still have a chance to win the race. If not for that late wreck, just a lot of action, the leader, whoever the leader was throughout the race, wasn't necessarily able to pull away at any time. There was action-packed racing all through the field. Of course, the cautions, the drama at the end, the Chris Buescher flip was a little crazy. We'll talk about that in a minute, but Denny Hamlin still, I think one of the best cars of the day from start to finish was the leader on lap one, able to get through at the end, a great move to hold off Kyle Busch, get the win for his second win of the season. He's really turned things around over the last six weeks or so after a really bad start to the season. Hamlin, I think is of these, you know, old guard sort of him and Kyle Bush have been able to figure out the next gen car much quicker than say Kevin Harvick, Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski, Martin Truex Jr. The guys who have been around for a long period of time. I think Kyle Bush was able to adjust to it first, but Hamlin over the last month or so at different types of tracks has been much more competitive than the beginning of the season when he was really just feeling it out. So kudos to Hamlin, Joe Gibbs racing on what to me drew was really the race of the year so far and continue the trend of intermediate races aside from Texas and Texas is awful and we don't even need to talk about that but the actual good intermediate tracks actually providing good racing for the first time in a long time in the cup series yeah that that was the best race I've watched in a very long time so many so many different cars were leading at times like Chastain uh Suarez Reddick I feel like everybody who led at least a lap had an issue besides the race winner of uh Denny Hamlin so he was he he led like two laps to start the race and then was irrelevant basically the rest of the race but he it wasn't like he was slow he was up there in the top 10 but it started with uh Chevy just dominating the first couple stages and then as we got into the night period, I, that's when we saw like the fours come to life. Like we saw uh, Briscoe, Harvick, uh, Custer all start to run near the front. And I first for thought, I thought that Chase Briscoe was going to be able to pass him in those fi final couple of laps. So then he kind of pulled the Bristol dirt move where he kind of just wrecked himself, but this time he didn't take out the leader. But um, caution came out and that, 
that wreck was something else. Dylan, I thought Dylan was going to have the race won for a second, but ended up clearing himself in front of Larson and just taking out the whole field. And Danny Hamlin, Kyle Busch both got through it and ended up winning the race, basically. Yeah, it was it was a chaotic ending. And yeah, I thought Austin Dillon with the fresh tires, especially how quickly he was able to get to second place in just half a lap, but couldn't clear it. That wreck was crazy at the end and just a really, really fun race overall. Uh, Tim, I saw you tweeting about it as well. I mean, it was a great race from start to finish and a great capper to the greatest day in motorsports. So uh, what's your perspective on the Coke 600 this weekend? You know, I'm not going to have the whole happy perspective, believe it or not, because let me let me be honest about this race. Yes, the racing was great. There was a lot of issues, though, for a lot of drivers throughout the race, which is, again, to me, a little bit a little bit frustrating. Coming from someone that watched the race from start to finish, this was not just the longest Coke 600 in history in regards to distance, but it was one of the most dreadful to watch outside of the And I don't mean the racing. The racing was great, but dreadful to watch in regards of, let's say, if you're sitting on the pit box and playing strategy. To me, the one thing that was, fr- or I should say, not that there's a couple things that were frustrating. I don't want to undermine. The racing was great. The ending was great. The stories, the racing was awesome. Awesome. But what ticks me off is this. NASCAR cannot figure out these tires still. We're halfway through the season, and I am tired of seeing leaders every single week of a race lose a left rear tire, lose another tire, and not by mistake, not by setup problems, just because these tires can't handle these racing surfaces. It's getting annoying. It's getting frustrating. Tyler Reddick should have two wins this year. Now, you want to scratch away the Bristol Dirt potential win with Chase Briscoe? That's fine. But how he lost Auto Club is unacceptable to me. The way these drivers battled throughout the Coke 600 to hopefully not cut down a tire, just like they did at Kansas, just like at Texas. It's frustrating that we have a caution clock, basically, knowing, hey, someone's going to cut down a tire. It's only a matter of time. And I'll say it like this for a Coke 600. Yeah, it's broke down the four 100 lap stages. But what's frustrating to me is the fact that we can't get a green flag pit stop in And when we try to, everyone's crashing because there's not much you can do. Yeah, there's passing. Yeah, there was a mix of strategy. And yeah, the end of the race was awesome. But if NASCAR can't figure out a proper tire, what is it going to do for the sport? Because, yeah, the Coke 600, again, Charlotte needed good racing. I thought this race was going to be like Texas, if I'm being honest, with how narrow the track was. It proved me wrong, and I'm I'm happy to see. Uh, Kyle Larson wrecked his car five, six times, turned around, put himself in a position to win, and it would have been a great story. And by the way, I hope they never try Abraham Lincoln again, because let me tell you something. That did not work out. And just like many, I was pulling for Austin Dillon there to make the move on that last restart and almost get it done. But that was unfortunately unable to happen. But it, it, it just, for a Coke 600 that can't naturally develop, I'm fine. Again, I was fine with the racing, fine with the mix. There, there, you know, races have progressions. There's issues. That's why I, I don't, 
say I despise stage racing, but that's what I miss about full distance races, okay? Is that you're going to have to deal with problems. You're going to have to be consistent. NASCAR, to an extent, takes away the consistency and develops more opportunity in racing within this situation. But you can't take the opportunity out of the driver's hands if you want to give it to them by having all these tire issues. And I'll say it like this. The Christopher Busher flip, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, is a big learning point, not just because of these tires, but the fact of with these independent rear suspensions, everything and so on, that's going to be a very big worry point now when we go to a plate track where if you lose a rear tire, something you know comes off as a result and goes under the car, you're going to flip and it's going to, it's going to hurt at much higher speeds. So, and, by the way, be lucky that was turf he was flipping on because grass, it's a lot more vicious. It rips up the surface. Charlotte's lucky they changed their infield. But at the end of the day, you can't figure out the tires. You can't figure out, you know, how to keep these cars from ripping off the rear wheels or having wheels falling off with, when I add, just one, you know, independent lug nut now. It's frustrating to me. And again, good ending. Congrats to Denny Hamlin. By the way, I want to point out too, he was battling being a cylinder down throughout the entire race. The entire race. So the fact that he was able to sneak away a victory shows a lot of progress for that 11 team. But it's a little bit frustrating again when a race just can't naturally develop to me. It becomes a crapshoot just like Atlanta was. And while, yeah, it wasn't wide open pack racing, you can't say this race was not a crapshoot from start to finish. And could make the Coke 600 very exciting to watch next year especially. But in racing terms, we didn't see much of a race for the Coke 600 because the drivers never had a chance to really do that. That's fair. And the tire issue is something that needs to be addressed. And I frankly don't understand why they switch the tires from five lug nuts to one. If you're just thinking of it from a physics standpoint, be a little safer for tires that are held in with five different bolts rather than one, but they definitely had their logic for that, but we're now through five mile and a half races. And that does continue to be a problem. What I will say though, about a race developing naturally, there are still opportunities for that to happen. And obviously you couldn't get a sustained green flag run in this race, but let's also not forget that when NASCAR was at its peak and I was, you know, I was sick, what, like back in October and I was watching a bunch of old NASCAR races on YouTube. There are cautions all the time in plenty of those. And, you know, that was when NASCAR was at its peak as well. It wasn't necessarily because the cars were designed poorly, but, you know, sometimes, sometimes races can still be good, even if they're not allowed to have their natural progression. And I do still have faith that eventually NASCAR will figure out this tire situation because it's really the only thing they have to dedicate their attention to right now, because everything else in my eyes with this car is working. It's just that and the short tracks. We've seen NASCAR with this next gen, I'd say solve about 10 problems. Now you only have two new problems that you have to solve. I think with the brain trust that we're able to figure out the next gen car to begin with, I think they'll be able to solve this eventually by the end of this season. But we have a couple minutes left. I want to touch on the Chris Busher flip. Now, I am going to disagree with you a little bit, Tim. Now, 
everybody was freaking out on Twitter, you know, that, oh, these next gen cars aren't supposed to flip. That was one of the most freak accident, I'd say, since the Timothy Peters incident at Texas, which, by the way, was with a truck, not a next gen car, because Chris Buescher hit a drain and ended up popping his car upside down. I mean, it was a weird. That, flip. And I, I know I know the time. He didn't tire, hear drain. I he did not. Tire. His tire went under the car. The tire went under the car. But my point is the fact that these tires have tethers. They have all these things, just like IndyCar does. The fact that a tire went underneath the car, to me, is what's concerning. Because what is keeping these tires connected to these cars? It, they're supposed to be built in. Yes, they're supposed to all be able to take impacts. That's what they were designed for. And when we're seeing these constantly fail, we're seeing wheels constantly fall off. To me, that's where the concern is. Because NASCAR at some point with tires falling off very well could be playing a very dangerous game just like IndyCar did. That's IndyCar. That's fair, but at the same time, I just want to say, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen a tire fall off and it lead to a flip. And, and you know, 20 years ago, Ryan Newman at Daytona right. right. was a completely different style car, and that really didn't lead to anything more from that. I know we've seen some tires and loose wheels and tires getting away this season, but I still feel like this is a bit of an isolated incident and just a weird way that it happened, and also the fact that it was on the turf. There was just a lot of different variables all at one time that contributed to Chris Buescher going upside down. And guess what? The most important thing, Chris Buescher, once they flipped the car over, walked out, just was just fine and was smiling when he was getting his interview after the infield in the infield care center so i still think the safety is there obviously there are a lot of problems with the tires that need to be addressed but i'm not really of the impression that there's really that much danger right now and it's not like this incident of a tire coming off and leading to a flip has never happened before it's happened with a truck it's happened with nascar in the cup series two decades ago but uh we only have a couple minutes left i want to let drew just jump in quickly with his opinion on this yeah, I, I agree with Eddie. I mean, I don't think there's much of a concern. If it happens again, that's when I think we should uh, start talking about it more. But I think this is just a one-in-a-million flip. I mean, the way he rolled over his tire and basically it was just bad luck for Chris Buescher. I don't I don't think it's anything we should look too hard at right now. Yes, it's a flip, and it's only the second flip, but the next gen so far. But um a whole different flip than uh, the one with Harrison Byrne, but him running over his tire like that, it's like uh, Eddie said, it's the Ryan Newman flip all over again, but this time the cars are connected by tethers. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with that in the end. Second most cautions ever in a Coke 600. Denny Hamlin with the win. A great capper for a great, uh, greatest day in motorsports. Uh, Drew Jua, he's with us for our NASCAR Pick'em. We'll have more of that this weekend when the Cup Series heads to Gateway. You can follow along with that on Twitter at Sportsbeak Live. Drew, thanks for joining us as always. Thanks. I'm picking, I'm picking Ross Chastain. I'm calling it right now. The wheel. Yeah, Ross Chastain. <laughs> indeed. Also, I'm starting to realize Drew is looking more and more like a clean-shaven Tim every single time he comes on here. I mean, if how do Tim I how do I stop that? Him, how do I stop it? I don't know. I don't know. Just the hair. I don't know. It's it's just. It's... Uh, I'm, I'm going bald. I'm going bald. It's a new look. <laughs> You guys are twinning, but that'll be it for this episode. Remember episode 100 will be next. We'll have some good stuff planned for that. So stay tuned. And I see Drew is pretty excited for that. <laughs> um, but until next time, I'm Eddie Kalegi. And I'm Tim Moore. Remembering his name. And this is Sportspeak. We will see you for episode 100.